Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchie, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. For 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their stories. Many of them were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. When the young Cajuns went overseas, their ability to speak French proved invaluable to military operations, and it had a profound impact on their sense of a Cajun identity. What emerged from this unique wartime experience was a long-lost pride in their heritage. When the military needed bilingual interpreters, they called on Frenchie to bridge the language gap. I've interviewed countless World War II veterans, and all of them have a fascinating and important story to share. There are, of course, several remarkable stories that stand out. Jeff DeBlanc's story is one of those. This Cajun ace from St. Martinville, Louisiana, shot down five enemy aircraft in one engagement in the South Pacific. He was subsequently awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest honor bestowed by our nation to an individual service member for heroics in action. But that's not the whole story. In January 1943, DeBlanc's small group of Grumman F-4F Wildcat pilots were assigned to escort and cover a squad of bombers to attack an enemy fleet a few hundred miles away. En route over the Solomon Islands, DeBlanc's external fuel tank on his plane malfunctioned. He realized at that moment that he would not have enough fuel to complete the mission and return safely to his base at Guadalcanal. Yet, he continued on. It was a courageous decision that forever changed his life. But it was also a calculated one. You see, DeBlanc had been reared in the Atchafalaya Basin Swamp, a remote and treacherous landscape that was not unlike the jungles of the islands of the South Pacific. And he spoke French and a bit of Spanish. This unique ability to speak multiple languages, he believed, could help him communicate with natives and allied coast watchers on the islands if it came to it. And so, with these life experiences and ingrained survival skills, he pressed on. Knowing that at some point during the mission, he would have to ditch his airplane and survive in some jungle long enough to be rescued. Underlying this gutsy decision was an unwavering commitment to duty. His mission was to fly in support of those bombers. If he turned back, as two other pilots did, there would be one less fighter to fend off the enemy aircraft from attacking those bombers. After all, that was his job, and those were his comrades. And so he pressed on, into the blue horizon, unaware of what dangers lie ahead, but prepared to meet them head on. This is a story about one of Louisiana's greatest war heroes and one of the most amazing World War II stories you will ever hear. My name, of course, is Jefferson Joseph DeBlanc. I had a love for flying because of the mail carriers past the route from Texas to uh, Florida, over to Louisiana in my era. I was born in, I mean, I reared in Port Barrier for a while. And I had one mail pilot had engine trouble, they hadn't landed, and we rushed to see what it was. I was, oh, about uh, eight years old in those days. And he was very anxious to get things done. He picked me up, since I was the first, and I put him in the cockpit. And from then on out, I was uh, hooked. Here we had, a, uh, in the Navy, 
There was less than a thousand pilots, and there's practically nothing in the Marine Corps Army in terms of the Air Force. So he put a CPT, civilian pilot training, into the universities. And 80% of all the pilots that he quickly generated came from this program. And I was one to grab it in a hurry, because I had three hours credit for something I already loved. And all your, my background reflected that of mathematics and physics. So I was right in handy, uh, in a handy situation to apply what I knew to the things that I love to do. So I got into the CPT flying train and picked up a, a private license with Piper Cub, 50 horsepower. And that's when the war broke out in Europe, 1939. And they had posters at every place. Anywhere, anytime you attended or went to the post office to get anything, there was always a fly for the U.S. Navy. Fly for the U.S. Navy. And they showed all kind of fancy plans. So we were going to fly for the U.S. Navy. Many of us applied in 1940 to get the draft off our back because in 1941, uh, 39 it broke out in Europe, so the draft was put upon students our age. And rather than be drafted, I wanted to go into pilot training, but that left me an opening to get in, too. I immediately applied for flight training when it dropped into three years of college, which I quickly got obtained in that time. And with that in mind, I went straight into naval flight training. And I wanted to stay in Navy and everything else, and, but I wanted fighters. Because with fighters, I could fight on my own terms, at least my own initiative. Uh, of course, I followed the doctrine of tiger of the of the fighter tactics against bombers, and it was just you had to do. But in a regular dogfight, you were on your own. So under those circumstances, it, I could see it an outlet for me. Immediately when Pearl Harbor broke out, December seventh, nineteen forty-one, they uh, froze my class of cadets in training to become all people with pilots. And I said, no way. I said, look, I want fighters, not people. He said, well, if you want fighters, you go to the Marine Corps. I said, where do I sign? I had no idea what existed. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing I found out in a hurry that I was in an outfit that moved very rapidly and they didn't play around. They were gone. Well, you, you were destined to fly. There's no doubt about that. That's for certain. So they trained us fast. And we could see it immediately upon graduation after we passed the link training and could fly, instrument flying, we were given the graduation exercise. And I had, uh, oh, for 200, not more than 250 hours when I finished of flying time. No dogfighting, no this type of thing. Didn't have time. The idea was to rush the class through and get them overseas. So they rushed us over and I could teach hey, we're going to be on the beach now in California and get us a convertible and we can go now. But as soon as we got over there, the, the ship was waiting to ship us over to the Guadalcanal. And that's how we ended the war. I had about less than 10 hours of flying time in the plane that I was going to use to fight the F-4F. But I wasn't alone in that. Most of the other guys were about the same. We put everything in context. Now, remember, we... We didn't hardly, we hardly knew where to throw the switches to fire the guns, or how to take off, and everything else. Until we had one man. It's all, the Marine Corps has a 
beautiful way of presentation. There's always one man who's very familiar, the core of it, and it was Lieutenant Colonel Bowles. And he sat us down and a bunch of kids and he said, let me tell you something. This is the way you fight a zero. He said, the zero is a paper kite. He said, head on is a dead man. Take him head on every time. What you'll do, you put the paper a few mils above his cockpit and then open up when you're in range, which, which see, and you'll, he'll explode, plainly explode. You know, you'll set it on fire and it will explode and you'll fly through the pieces. And he was right. I used that tactic. <laughs> it works perfectly. I said, well, yeah, but what if he's on your tail? He said, don't worry. And well, I said, don't worry, he'll shoot you down. Oh, no. I said, look, he knew it backwards and forth. He said, the zero has, he, that always know the enemy's, you know, capability. He has two, uh, two 7.7 through, through the nose, which is like rifle, machine gun. Seven point seven millimeters, you know, through, through the nose of the aircraft. That's to get your range. He'll fire through his propellers. That's to get your range. But everything is all right. You, you watch the tracers go by the cockpit or they hit the armor plate. We had a little armor plate back there. If you don't hit the bottom, you're going to hit your neck. You know, you're going to knock your head off if you were too tall. But you watch it. Uh, when they stop firing, when you don't see the tracers anymore, then you're in trouble. He said, that's when you're scared. Because he's got two machine guns, I mean cannons rather, uh, but they're low muzzle, 20 millimeter cannons in the wing. And there's two of them. And when he opens up with those cannons after he quit firing, because he has your bore started, they're just like uh, big moth uh, balls, Pat, and you can almost reach and grab them when you go through. You can all, when you're scared and healed, he won't hit you. And he was right. See, this is the way. So we learned from him, and that's the way we got our tactics. The aircraft was a Wildcat, F4F. The, the guns that they had, the mid-inboard guns, that six, three guns, three machine guns in one wing and three in the other. So the inboard guns were both, uh, were, you, had a, you had three switches on it. And the, the inboard guns, you would put the inboard switch to the middle. And it would go up and you'd fire those two, but I, most of the guys put all six guns on when they went into combat. I didn't. I always used four guns. Kept two guns to come back home on. Kids ran out of him. And that's why some of the guys got, uh, they were called, um, I gave him the whole nine yards. This is Marine Corps terminology. Marine Corps pilot said, I gave him the whole nine yards. He burned out all of his barrels doing it when he shot at the zero and, and just held the trigger down and in 45 seconds you don't have any ammunition left. You should fire squirts. Mm -hmm. You see? And, uh, so the inboard guns are converted at 250 yards. The midboard guns at 300 yards, and the outboard guns at 350. So you have between 250 and 350 of the It's like your football field, mm -hmm. a solid. And that was beautiful, because I shot down planes. It, it, once I got the hang of it, I could get, get the, the pipper and everything head on or gone away from it. I'd wait until I got that football field effect. So, you know, you tear them to pieces. So, now one thing I liked about the Grumman, it was idiot proof. <laughs> In other words, you couldn't make an error. On instruments, it was beautiful. And for, for fighting in combat, you hit what you saw. No doubt in my mind.
Dubois experienced his first combat action on the day he arrived on Guadalcanal in November of 1942. He flew as a wingman in a formation of four fighters sent to attack 25 Japanese bombers en route to Guadalcanal. During the engagement, two American pilots were killed when their planes collided. From that moment on, he knew that his training was over. This was the real deal. He shot down two Japanese bombers on that first day and two more enemy fighters the next. For the next several months, DeBlanc flew combat missions from Guadalcanal almost every day as a member of the Cactus Air Force. The squadron's primary mission was to protect the American toehold on Guadalcanal by attacking Japanese naval and air forces en route through the Solomon Island chain that were sent to reinforce the strategic island in the South Pacific. This was the first major battle in the Pacific with combined naval, air, and ground troops from both sides. Holding on to Guadalcanal was critical to the overall American effort in the Pacific. In late January 1943, American forces received intelligence from Native Coast Watchers that a sizable enemy fleet was headed straight for Guadalcanal. The Cactus Air Force was quickly alerted and given orders to intercept the Japanese convoy steaming south a few hundred miles away. In order to make the extended trip, however, the Wildcat fighters needed extra fuel. The planes were equipped with external fuel tanks, but this new fueling system had not yet been perfected and there were still unresolved mechanical issues. But there was no time to contemplate any deficiencies or quick fixes. The planes had to launch. Sitting around playing AC Ducey at uh, near headquarters when word came down that a big Japanese fleet was coming down to hit us. And we were going to send everything we had to stop them. And these were the pilots who had to go. Well, all we had as VMF 112 was to escort 12 SBDs with 500 to 1,000 pound bombs, actually 1,000 pounders. And SBD from two. I don't forget this, this, the number. And we were eight pilots. That's all we had. Eight pilots. And we were going to be the fighter escort for those 12 men. Now, beside that, that B-17s from Espirito Santos, they were going to come in. And I heard some army had some stuff. I, I had no idea. To me, we were the only ones going up there to hit the Japanese fleet. And we were not. It was at, at high altitudes. But our mission was to go in and say, keep close quiet. After we took off, and just I'm flying with members of our squadron now, BMF 12 two guys at 60 miles out, and they rushed us in a hurry. We I, we didn't have Corsairs. First, I'll tell you about Corsairs in a minute. All we had was the F4F, and this was 270 miles away. So we had to put on a wind tank, okay. which was hooked up and in such a way that it would work or don't work. You know, loose suction between air and the, the carburetor from the wing, instead of in the belly tank, or no belly tank. So we went on out there, and after we take off, that, that put my gauge, I, I couldn't read the gas gauge. They said everybody had been topped off. That was a lie. I wasn't topped off with gasoline. The, the 50 gallon in the tank was in the, the wing tank. You had 50 gallons there, which give us the extra range we needed and the dogfight to, uh, to come back. 
And we left at fifteen hundred out, three o'clock in the afternoon. So here we're going, and the SBDs are slow, 130 knots. And we were much faster than that. So they took off, and here eight of us took off, and we had to, you know, zigzag to stay with the bombers. When I got to the Russell Islands, I looked at my gas gauge, and I, I, I couldn't believe it. I had 80 gallons in the main tank when I should have 160. I had 80. And then all of a sudden, bam, my, my wing uh, quit, uh, the gasoline quit sucking, and I had to switch tank to the main. And here I am at the Russell Islands. Right before we hit the Russell Islands, two guys, and they are, we, I never did care for much these guys, but that, they have to live with what they did. Two of them said, we got engine trouble. We're going back. Now, with eight of us, we're down to six. They left. Went back to Guadalajara. I could easily have left with that 80 gallons and the loss of suction here, which they can verify. You can make it back to Guadalcanal on that. I can make it, oh yeah, I can make it with it from 60 miles out. But not after a fight. Not after. I couldn't, I couldn't, if I was to continue the flight, there's no chance of me making it back. But uh, you have to live with what, you, what you're doing, you know, and I'm not a hero or anything else. My other job was to protect the bombers, and here we're going after the Japanese fleet, for crying out loud, and uh, two of them are going back. And we're down to six guys protect 12 dive bombers, and what, what goes on? So I decided to stay. I told the others, I said, look, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to make it back if I have enough gas, but hey, go home. And they said, no. I said, what I'm going to do, just uh, come back past the Russells. That's the way I figured. I had a circular slide rule. I could figure my guys in a hurry with a circular slide rule that they have. We use circular slide rules instead of the dipstick, you know. And figured out the guys in a hurry and said, I'm not going to make it, but I'll make it back almost to the Russells. I don't do too much fighting. Look for me there in my rubber boat. I'm going to bail out being that rubber boat. There was no airfield on, on any, any island near where you could land? No. Uh, and then, I, but I, remember, I would, we don't own this, just Japanese only. This is entirely Japanese. That's Munda, New Jersey, and the Bella La Bella, Kola Megara, Giso. That's all Japanese. Japanese only islands. If you bailed out, you, you'd be stuck with the Japanese. Well, from the time that I took the option of staying with it, you have to live with yourself, you know. Uh, I'm not a brave man or a, a man of uh, uh, looking for any uh, medal or anything in, but it, you have to remember that your duty was to stay with the men. And their lives, there's two men to a bomber, and uh, you're to protect them. So that's what they expect of you. And I just decided, I took the option. I figured... I was born and reared here in the, in the swamp country, and I could survive this type of territory, comparable to someone in New York City or Los Angeles who's not familiar with the, the, the ways of the jungle. So I, I thought I weighed up my, my odds were pretty good in my favor. So let's continue with the thing. And there's a fleet coming down, so that's part of our action. How long, how long did you have to think about that? Um, <laughs> I thought of it from the time we left the Russells to the time we hit Munda, and that's about uh, maybe 15 minutes that we... So you had 15 minutes to decide? Decide. Okay. And I could make it, if I decide to quit, I'd go. But uh, 
the, the, the fleet was supposedly there, and when I went over there, that's when we saw the Tomaru. Imagine that for just a moment, being in his position. You know full well that you don't have enough fuel to make it back safely, and that if you continue on, you will at some point have to ditch your plane somewhere near one of these remote islands and take your chances at survival. He clearly weighed his options and chose to stick with the bombers. The date was January 31st, 1943, and what he experienced during the next 72 hours is the stuff of legend. I shot down five, actually six, but I got credit for five. I was the first Marine Corps pilot to get five in one fight, so I, sometimes I think, well, because I didn't turn back, I was running out of gas, knew I'd never make it, so I elected to stay. Two other guys turned back, but they couldn't uh, make it. They didn't have that engine trouble, which I put with a little question mark. But you have to live with what you do. If you're escorting them and you realize that you're not going to make it back, you either go back, nobody will criticize you, or you continue on and take your chances coming back. We survived because we, we survived and our, our own initiative. Now, between you and me, uh, I look at that survival in the course. The next pilots that we trained did not dare get orders unless they had 500 hours of flying time and the fighter they were going to fight with. We had less than 10. They had five, plus survival training. Now I'll tell you what I think of survival. I've seen it too often. If a man gives up, he's a dead man. But if he says, I'm going to survive, he'll survive. And that's the way I see a survival training. If you ought to live, you'll live, if you have the initiative. Born and reared here in the swamp, too. When I got shot down, it's, it was a home to me to be in the woods. So I, I felt comfortable to survive getting food that I could get. Tell me, tell me about that. What day was that? That was uh, January the 31st, 1943. Of course, I'll always remember that. I had just shot down five enemy planes, and was, I'd knocked down a sixth, but it was never threat. The Coast Watchers saw it, and the dive bombers saw it, the ones we protected. So I shot him off the tails of the dive bombers on the way out. I said, so that's how I got mine with that. But the Coast Watch just verified it and everything else. The, this, and then after that, I did the, the, the thing a pilot shouldn't do. I looked around and said, well, there's no more. But I didn't look into the sun. So we just set it. Out of the horizon. And, oh. I didn't see the guy when I turned, and I don't know where it came from, but I looked at my watch, it was 1,800 hours, 6 o'clock. And we all wore our watch on the inside of our wrist, and it kind of pushed the throttle. Wouldn't hook, you know. And 7.7 came over my shoulder and took the watch clean off my wrist on the first boat, and the 20 millimeter came out and knocked my canopy off and set fire to the primer. Then, of course, he had me boresided, and I tried to skid away, but he had me pretty good. So I had to, like I, I always said, I, when I speak with someone about being shot down, I said, well, then after that second shot setting fire to the aircraft, I became a little apprehensive about my situation here. And I said, in the Marine Corps, we have another name for apprehensive, but I won't mention it here. You can understand what I mean. So there's that type of stuff. And when I bailed out, jeez, it, it was like this. It was, hey, free as a, a bird in the air. Didn't feel uncomfortable about it. Pulled a ripcord, right through. Came through okay. 
Then the guy circled me twice. Now, that's when I played dead in the shoes, like old father, you know, the old routine. And he, on the first pass, he looked me over closely, and on the second pass, he just looked, I didn't looking around. I could see that on the peripheral vision, and then he took off. He could have easily killed me, but he didn't. It took me a while to swim in, i got to say this, to get aboard there, they dropped so many bombs, I figured the sharks were gone. Boy, they're vicious over there. And uh, they weren't gone. They had a lot of fish dead in the water, so they came back to eat it. But I guess I was very lucky because I was only hit by a fish right before I hit the shore, and I'm sure it was a dolphin because he pushed me rather than bit me. Yeah. And I went on in and fell asleep. And, of course, he had me going in the trees at nighttime, but it was the next night I got into it. But the next day, I couldn't fight that jungle undergrowth. Mm -hmm. I could see that the only way I could make it to the island of Japanese where Vila Field was is diametrically opposite. It's a round island with a volcano, very active, up to 5,500 feet in the middle. So you were going to swim to that other island? Well, no, I was going to. Uh, uh, I'm at the island, Kolombangara, but the, the uh, field is way at the other end of the island. Okay. Now, I can't cut across because it's too dense. I have to go around. So you but walked? You walk well, the beach? I, I'm going to walk, but there's no beach all day. So I, I had mangrove swamps, mangrove trees. So what I do is get in, and I, there was one part where I could make a, where I fell into the plane, I didn't know then. So I walked across, and then I hear the beach, and there was a cut across. So I'd waist deep, I cut across rather than walk through the desk, because there was a sort of a beach here that I could use to go around. When I went halfway, I saw a shark fin cut over here. Man, that scared the living hell out of me. So I immediately ran for shore, I mean, faster than her. Of course, the boys I made, he, was, he rode in in a hurry, came after me. But I, uh, I dropped my boondockers, my, one of my shoes slipped off. And he came up to the surface, circled and went straight down after the shoe while I made the beach. Lucky. But then that night I slept in the tree. And then that's when I saw the... Uh, Path. The next morning when I woke up, I saw a path going through the jungle, and that's why I went on the path. And when I went to the path, I, I knew I had a good place now to cut across the island through this path. When I went over there, from the volcano, they had streams going to the, to the, they made out of brackish water where I had met the sea, going to the sea. So when I got there in the open, I, I had to stop because I was just one hut, and I didn't know what. This is Japanese territory. So there must be Japs there, or it might be an odd force for the natives. And right when I got there, I didn't go immediately in there. I stopped to listen, and the birds were singing. And I know from the capital, I what to do with the birds. I simply went out in the open, and they stopped like that. Then I dug back in, they started singing again. Then I knew that nobody was in that hut, because if they had been in that hut, they wouldn't do that. So that's why I went. Stuff. You, so, Mr. Jeff, you mentioned about survival. What was, what was some of the things that you had with you that helped you survive those, those, uh, those hours alone on, on the island? Did you have any weapons? Did you have any food, canteen, uh, compass, no. anything? Uh, the only thing I had was the uh, survival kit. You see, when I bailed out, I lost my, my 45 because I, I didn't have my shoulder holster. I have it now here. I didn't have my shoulder. This was just a one assigned plane that I then generally didn't fly. Mm -hmm. And I, I strapped it around me over here. But when I bailed out, it fell off of my, my request. And the other 
back, your backpack is your uh, safety device. For uh, Neil, for not uh, we didn't have uh, the medicine you have today, uh, but it had uh, a iodine or some a candy bar if you had seeds and some foods. Right. Mostly candy bars, chocolate. Yeah, knife. Yeah, and the knife. Yeah, short knife. And that was all. And it was a short knife that I kept that I tried to open the coconuts with. That I I break it. Uh, I get it in there and then break it. Those maidens, I had been wounded in that dressings. I put sulfonilamide on it. That oh, you had you had gotten wounded? Yeah, from the shrapnel. Okay. Uh, you see, when I hit the well, uh, they said wait till your feet hit the water before you get out your parachute. And I said, oh no way. Uh, I, I said uh, I got twenty ten eyesight. I can see when I'm ready to hit because that thing will come canopy will come down on me. I wouldn't be able to suck Yeah. Wrap around you. Yeah, it's a wrap around me and I'll struggle. So I said I'll, I'll let myself go about ten feet over the water. What I thought was ten feet, now I let go was over sixty feet. But my Midwest had been stripped by the shrapnel here, and the other one popped over. But I went so deep, I could see the reflected sunlight. The sun was going below the horizon. And then I finally came up. But this is one part I could swim in with the, with the uh, Midwest, half of it. Following that second night spent on the island of Kulamangara, DeBlanc awoke to an eerie setting. The birds surrounding the field by the little hut that he slept in were not singing. There appeared a small man approaching the hut, followed by five more, all carrying machetes. DeBlanc threw down his knife and effectively surrendered to these armed natives. They were likely headhunters, he thought, members of one of the many tribal groups that lived on the islands and were known to trade captured American pilots to the Japanese. This was not a good proposition for a Marine ace, who had just shot down and killed several Japanese pilots. A bounty on his head would certainly fetch a high price. Brought me to a canoe, a 12-man outrigger, put me in there, and we started back down the island. We got to the right side, away from Vila Field, and I could see, well, they're bringing me to the Japanese, because this is all Japanese territory. I guess that uh, they're going to uh, trade me to the Japanese for something. When we got into the village, the uh, chief himself, I, I noticed the absence of women and children immediately. Just all they had was men around there and the chief, but not from this island. And they put me, now I'm not giving you any Rambo stuff. They put me in there sort of a little cage like a bamboo just there, and two men in, in the front. And I found out from the course watching, they weren't, they weren't going to worry about you. They were worried that if the chief was worried that if anybody, the Japanese flying all the time overhead, would spot a white man in the village, they straight the village. Whenever the pilot shot down, that's the standard procedure for the Japanese. I found that out later. That's why they kept me there. And here, at that time, here comes a, a man, an old Ati, out there. Must have been about 5'4", 5'5", five, with seven other men. Came into the village, the way he was walking, I knew he was a leader. He just handled himself. Other guys were taller than him. And he had a ten-pound sack of rice on his shoulder. And he went straight to the cage, ignored the chiefs, put it down at my feet, 
and they opened a cage at their feet against him and stuff, and they let me out and put him in his jaw. And right then and there, I knew that, uh, you know, you can't price out the cost of your life, dollars and cents, no one can, but I knew exactly how much I'm worth. That they were going to trade me to the Japanese, but later on, but for rice. And I got by with it. And we went along. We didn't say a word. I found out later they started beating drums. That was to get the women and cheering back. Because the Japanese had hurt and abused the people in this village. That was the only village that was against the Japanese here in Kola Megara, and that's where I was. Unbeknownst to the Blanc at the time, this group of natives who traded him for a 10-pound sack of rice were allies with the Coast Watchers, a select group of indigenous people in the Pacific tasked with spying on enemy movements and rescuing stranded Allied personnel. He was now in friendly hands and would soon be rescued. From that day forward, he looked at life differently. He appreciated that on that particular day, on that desolate Pacific island, his life was worth no more and no less than a 10-pound sack of rice. You know, you cannot price out. If you try to price out every, everything you own, you can't do it. There's no bother. By the time you figure it out, everything else has changed with Wall Street. When they came down there, this Artis, his name, and he was a little shorter than the other. He was five feet five. And uh, he had a, a ten pound sack. I didn't know how, I, I assume it was a ten pound, because you don't go around carrying anything greater than a ten pound on your right shoulder. And uh, he uh, took it out there and, and brought it in. and. I said, what the heck, look at that. When he came in, I, but I could see that that guy had authority by the way he spoke and the way he looked and the way he pointed without saying a thing. And when he did, they jumped and they hopped it. And they brought the line, took the rice off his shoulder, threw it at the native foot, the whole thing, right where I was, my feet. And then that was the sign of sale and they took it and I took it. We got it. I took the path out of it. <laughs> And we all went away. In other words, they bought me for a 10-pound sack of rice. So I, could, I know I could go out there in that corner where all the cash is and try to figure it. And I know I could figure it because I know I have to stop at 10-pound sack of rice. <laughs> that's the truth. As I get older, you know, the war story gets better. I said, that's a 100-pound sack of rice he brought. When I first interviewed Jeff DeBlanc in 2004, then again in 2006, he talked about growing up a Cajun in a swamp and having the benefit of speaking French. Like other Frenchies, he felt that this gave him a competitive edge. He wrote about this in his published memoirs titled The Guadalcanal Air War, Colonel Jefferson de Blanc's Story. By sunset on the first day, he wrote, I had become familiar with the flying area in the Solomon slot map. I could hardly believe my eyes and felt as if I were home in the Atchafalaya Basin. The names of most of these islands in the Solomon chain were French and Spanish. Both languages were common in Louisiana, and I could speak each fairly fluently. This was a good omen for me, and I felt that the world was young and I would never die here. I could survive in the jungles of this island chain if I were forced down. That this was a home away from home gave me an added edge of confidence in the air combat battles which followed. The people that we dealt with, in, uh, the Louisiana guys, uh, we, were, we were more split, uh, bonded by the Cajun ancestry than the other, I noticed in the uh, northern boys. 
if you can uh, if you can pick up the language or if you know it uh, in more than one language, you have an advantage. In my estimation, they always came. I always say that you had the advantage because when you start uh, in the uniform and you're American, you're short, and they've been listening to your English all the time, and all of a sudden you come out there and, and want to talk to guys. Hey, boom, yeah, you see, come over, la la la, but no. Then that's just something, and the natives will spot it like that, and they'll come out there. This way you have a sort of an insight to, uh, to communication with the islanders rather than uh, just by brute force and assigned to it. Several days following his heroic actions over Kulumbungara, DeBlanc was ferried by an outrigger canoe to the home of an allied missionary. From there, Coast Watchers secured his transfer to a U.S. Navy PBY Catalina float plane that landed nearby. He was immediately sent to Guadalcanal for recuperation. On December 6, 1946, President Harry S. Truman presented the Medal of Honor to Jeff DeBlanc for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty on that day in the Solomon Islands. Jeff DeBlanc lived a long and prosperous life in his hometown of St. Martinville, Louisiana, where he had a long career as a math and physics teacher. He passed away in 2007, shortly after completing his memoir. Just before he died, Jeff and his family agreed to donate all of his war memorabilia, including his medals, to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Jeremy Collins had the distinguished honor of taking possession of his medals and transporting them to the museum for all to see and appreciate. We've asked Jeremy to join our program and to share his story. My name is Jeremy Collins. I'm the director of conferences and symposia at the National World War II Museum's Jenny Craig Institute for the Study of War and Democracy. I had previously worked in the museum's collections and exhibits department, and it was during this time where I had the honor and privilege of meeting and getting to know Jeff DeBlanc. The museum was contacted by Jeff's daughter, Barbara, shortly before he passed in 2007. As the assistant director of collections and exhibits, I was given the task of traveling with one of my colleagues, Mr. Tommy Lofton, who conducted oral histories for the museum's research department, to drive to St. Martinville, Louisiana, meet with Jeff, and to talk to his family about what to do with Dad's stuff when the time was right. We went, didn't know what to expect, other than a nice, pleasant engagement in the living room of the house. Uh, Jeff was closer to the end than the beginning at that point, obviously. But when we got there, he sat up higher in his chair where he was resting, leaned forward when he could to engage with us and to share his stories through a weakened voice, but stories that will stay with me forever regardless. After a few hours of engaging with Jeff, mostly with Tommy and myself remaining silent and just listening to the stories, um, we said our goodbyes to him and then talked to the family where they expressed a keen interest in our museum being the final repository of Jeff's artifacts from his wartime experiences, including his Medal of Honor. Jeff passed away on Thanksgiving of 2007. I got the news. Um, 
sent a message to Barbara, and then followed the obituary and the notifications of when his service would be. My other colleague, Bill Detweiler, and I traveled to St. Martinville and went to the service. First, we went to the visitation, and as everybody but the funeral director and Barbara were leaving the visitation room with Jeff's open casket, Barbara asked me to stay behind, and I did as told, did as requested, and walked over to the casket with this gentleman and Barbara. The funeral director reached into the casket and took off the medal from Jeff's neck, handed it to Barbara, and then closed the casket. And then Barbara turned and looked at me and handed me the medal, which I was not expecting at that time to be retrieving any of his personal effects, certainly not his medal. Uh, fortunately, I'd brought my curator gloves to make sure that uh, no oil from hands or dirt would get on anything should, should we take any of the artifacts that day. Uh, I put the metal with the ribbon inside one of the gloves, and I put it inside my suit pocket. And there it was on my chest as we walked out and went to the cemetery for the burial. It's a wonderful service. Bugler played taps. Missing man formation flew over, and everyone said their final goodbyes to him. And all the while, Jeff's medal and ribbon were right over my heart. To this day, it still remains the most uh, important and meaningful artifact that I've ever personally collected, an experience that I've had in my 20-plus year career here at the museum. A few weeks later, we came back with a van, a rental van, to load up the remainder of Jeff's artifacts. Some uniforms, some papers, letters. Um, obviously, we had the metal already, but also the about seven-foot-tall fishing spear that plays such an important story in Jeff's actions on that day in the South Pacific for which he was awarded the medal. And we have that spear and his medal, and a cartoon strip where his story was broadcast throughout the country, his heroics were broadcast throughout the country, uh, on display in our Road to Tokyo exhibit in the Guadalcanal Gallery where we talk about the Cactus Air Force and the brave men like Jeff DeBlanc who served our nation so honorably and well. Thank you, Jeremy, for sharing that touching story and for reminding our audience of the value and importance of preserving these World War II memorabilia for posterity. It was the fishing spear that belonged to the native islander IT for which Jeff traded his Marine Corps belt buckle on the day that he was rescued. In the year 2000, Jeff returned to the Solomon Islands and reunited with IT on the island of Vela La Vela, where he got to thank him one last time for saving his life. For the Cajun ace, he had come full circle. This concludes this episode of the Frenchie Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. Join us for more of the fascinating stories of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II as told by the veterans themselves. Up next, we will feature stories from several French-speaking Acadian World War II veterans from Old Acadie in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And you'll be amazed by the shared experiences of these Cajuns and Acadians. The Fritchie Podcast music is provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Sidorff.